Before we get into the message this morning, I'd like to uh, share a thank you note from Ethan Troster, dear South Hope family. Thank you for the privilege of sharing with you the ministry God has opened up to me with main ministry. It was great. I was greatly encouraged by the group prayer time and personal interactions afterwards. Thank you for the generous gift of $600. God used you to meet some current needs. I'm richly blessed to have you all as friends and look forward to continue to serve the Lord together in the coming years in Christ. Ethan, Ethan Troster. <clears throat> Well, we are beginning a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and um, next week we'll break down the book into a little bit more detail here. But in Acts chapter 18, where Jason just read, um, is the birth of this church. I want to ask you this morning, can you think of anything more powerful than fear? Fear, it's like the alarm system of the White House, right? Anything penetrates it, the, the, the sirens and the alarms are going to go off. It guards and freezes and tries to protect what is right. It shrieks and yells if anything violates its safety. Fear is like the vault lock at the bank. The vault lock at the bank, it's tight, it's rigid, it's clicked tightly with an indecipherable code to get in and be exposed. Fear is like an army base in Afghanistan. It's on full alert. It's, it's always watching. Its eyes are glued to the surveillance screens and radars and entrances. All devices are fully engaged to notice its enemies' incoming threats. Fear is a powerful force and it has a paralyzing and, and crushing effect. But fear is not an infinite power. Fear has been ignored. Fear has been replaced. Fear has been thrown aside. Fear has seen its trembling knees and its sweaty palms firm and dry. It has seen its paralyzed feet and frozen mouth move and open. Fear is not an infinite force. Fear is the evil one's most powerful lie and immobilizing shackles, isn't it? But God has not given the believer a spirit of fear, Paul Paul tells us, but of power and a spirit motivated by love and a sound mind. And in Acts chapter 18, I want you to journey with me into the birth of a church, Corinth. That began when God's people put down their fears and put, in, put on faith in God's promise and shed the shackles of fright and intimidation for action because of the presence of God and the promises, promise of His Word. And God birthed the church. This is the first message in a series of messages from 1 Corinthians. And I want to show you the circumstances and story of how the, 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 the church of Corinth came to be. And next week we'll build on this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 3. As Jason read Acts 18, verses 1 through 18, you can divide it into four parts. Verses 1 through 4, you have Paul's arrival in Corinth. Verses 5 through 8, you have the witness of the city, in the city. Verses 9 through 11, you have the assuring vision of Jesus. And verses 12 through 18, you have the promise of Jesus that bears true and rings true. But before we get into Acts 18, I'd like you to turn over with me for a little background in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Because in 1 Corinthians, we can piece together some of the details of even Paul's arrival in the city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 through 5. A lot of times we picture Paul as this uh, uh, John Wayne kind of character, don't we? He strolls in the town and he fixes what was wrong, and, he, and, he, and he, uh, he kicks out the bad guys, and you know everything, everything's good after that. Paul's a human being just like you and I. John Wayne isn't. 
or wasn't. <laughs> Paul had feelings. Paul had fears. Paul had intrepidation. Paul had had, had uh, uh, worries. And First Corinthians two verses three through five, he says this. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It was about this journey here and to Corinth that Paul said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, fear, and trembling. What were some of the reasons? Uh, and, and, and Paul's heart for the fear and the reason for his resolve. What, would, what was it specifically about the city of Corinth that set off alarm bells in his heart? That necessitated his, division, his, his decision to preach only Christ and the cross? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth. And this is where it is located on modern modern day Greece today is where the city of Corinth is. And Corinth in Paul's day was the largest, most cosmopolitan cosmo, excuse me, cosmopolitan city of Greece. It was a population of about two hundred thousand. It later swelled to about three hundred and fifty thousand. It was located at the southern end of, of an isthmus, a narrow strip of land that connects the uh, peninsula of Greece with the Greek mainland. And it was, an, it, was a, it was a main center for commerce. It had a couple ports, one on the Adriatic Sea and one on the Aegean Sea. And at its narrowest point there, that little strip of land that connects the peninsula of Greece with the continent of Europe there, at its narrowest spot, it's three and a half miles wide. And Emperor Nero began a canal there so that they wouldn't have to go around the treacherous coast of Greece, but could just cut through like the Panama Canal. This was um, not completed, though, by Nero. And so what they would do is um, they would unload, they would go as far, the ships would go as far as they could into the canal, and then they would roll them on logs across the rest of the way to the other side of the coast. <clears throat> and... Small boats were placed on these carts and they transferred the cargo from one place to the other. And, 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 and as a result, um, Corinth became a major seaport and invited all kinds of people from all over the Roman world, sailors in particular. And with that came some undesirable elements. Among the Greeks, the word that's translated to live like a Corinthian, to live immorally, to live in a life of fornication, as the Bible describes it, was to live like a Corinthian. It's translated to Corinthianize. So the city had a major reputation. It was, it was a new city. There was no major building that Paul would have seen as he strode into the city that would be older than 100 years old because it had been, had been burned down and destroyed by the Romans with their conquering of the Greeks. Outside of, of, of the city, the, the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, uh, commanded the city, overlooking the city on the, on the, on the hill. It was a 1,900 foot hill that dominated the city from its edges. Inside the city walls, close to the marketplace, stood a temple of the sun god Apollo, the patron god of the city. And worship of God, though, the one true God, was present in Paul's day. 
There was a Jewish settlement in Corinth, and it was with them in verse 4 that Paul begins his mission. But what would have intimidated Paul about this, coming to this particular city? What was the pride and the immorality of the Corinthian people that probably intimidated Paul? Because as one author writes, the cross of Christ comes in direct conflict with both of those things. The Corinthians were a proud people. They were intellectually uh, uh, arrogant. and, And you see this in Paul's correspondence with them when he writes his letters. They were proud of this city. Julius Caesar himself had had it rebuilt in 46 B.C. They boasted of its wealth and culture, and Corinth was known for having a version of the Olympic Games called the Isthmian Games, after their isthmus, their their canal there, they hosted every other year. Because of its political prestige, it became the capital of, of Achaia, taking precedence even over the famed city where Paul had just come from, of Athens. And Paul comes with a cross of Christ that slays human pride to this city. And he'll say later on, not many wise, not many influential, not many upper class Corinthians responded to the gospel. And you can see why. They're barriers to the gospel. But as I mentioned already, it was not only its pride, but it was its immorality. It was a wicked place. Behind the city was the temple of Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of love. There were 1,000 female slaves that served her and roamed the city streets by night. Corinth was like the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified and risen here, summons those who come face to face with it to either leave their lifestyles of fornication and pride and come to Jesus or continue in their way. And Jesus Christ's cross here was a stumbling block to the proud the sinful as it is to all of us in our sin. And so Paul said, I came in weakness. I was not a good orator, he'll say later in 1 Corinthians. I came in fear and in much trembling. And he says in 1 Corinthians 2 that it was necessary for him when he came to Corinth to know nothing about except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which leads us to some of the purpose for the book of Acts. Acts, in the beginning here, is shown to show the certainty of a firm foundation of Jesus' work that is continued by building a church unto the ends of the earth. And opposition would not stop the advance of the gospel. And today, we really need to rescue with the question of, God, are you still building your church today? Are you really at work And if this process is true, that you really are building your church and you are at work, am I part of that? Can I be involved in that? Are you really at work? Can you use me? As I am in line with your will, will you work through me? And this passage brings us into the life of God's faithful warrior who wrestled with the very same worries fears and objections that we do, but he stepped out onto God's promise that God would build his church. He did not let his feelings control his actions, but he obeyed God. And God's Spirit was pleased with his faith in Jesus, built his church, 
In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said he would make them witnesses and the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out from them from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, under the uttermost parts of the earth. And in the story of Acts, God calls out a particular individual, this person, Paul. A unique story, well-equipped, well-learned. But God tells him his purpose. And I'd like you to uh, flip over with me to Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. When God calls... Paul, called Saul then before his name changed, when he calls Paul, added a direct path to persecute Christ's church, to destroy it, he says this in Acts 9.15. He says, Go your way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel to me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Gentiles are people who are non-Jews. For I will show him how great things... He must suffer for my name's sake. And so God uses Paul. If you turn over to Acts chapter 15 and verse 14, after Paul's first missionary journey that began in Acts 13. Acts 15 verse 14. They're recounting everything that God had done in that journey. And they say this. That Simeon has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Jesus was building his church. And this church would be Jew and non-Jews alike. Unlike the Old Testament um, uh, trajectory there with primarily Israel. Then in Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 20, at the end of his life, when Paul is telling the Roman leaders when he is arrested here what God has done in his life and restating his mission, he says this in Acts 26 and verse 16. Jesus speaking to him said, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen, and of those things in the which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom now I send you, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. I want you to see this morning, as you turn back to our text, Acts 18, that God is in the work of reconciling people to himself by the power of the gospel of the cross and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, and he's doing it today. And verses 1 through 4, we have God's presence in his people. And verses 5 through 8, we have God's presence and his plan. In verse 9 through 11, we have God's presence and his promise. In verse 12 through 18, God's presence and his provision. Verses 1 through 4. After these things, Paul departed from Athens. His, Athens, his, 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 his uh, story there of, of what he experienced at Mars Hill in Athens. And he came to Corinth. And notice this. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came to them. And because he was of the same craft or the same trade, he abode with them and when worked, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned or persuaded, argued in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Do you see God's hand in that little event right there? Notice it says, and he found a certain Jew. He found a certain Jew. When that happened, Paul must have uh, 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 realized that God was going to bear fruit here with his faith. 
He had stepped out. He obeyed God. He had come initially with fear and trembling. And he'll resort to that again. But God gives him people. And I want you to see that in God's work of building his church, God's always working behind the scenes. I have a little note there by my <clears throat> that I wrote there next to that word found. It was no accident. It was no accident. And notice how Paul's ministry and how really this principle of ministry opens up here. Notice that it says in verse 3, because he was of the same craft, the same trade. You see, Paul probably didn't stride into the city yelling at people. Probably what happened was uh, he went into the city and observed like he did at Athens. And he began to mingle in the marketplace, the agora, the marketplace. And he had a trade. He was a, he was a tent maker. And that word probably means a leather worker. And they used to make clothing and even tents out of this particular goat hair. And Paul was, was, was gifted in that. He was able to, to have in his mind the certain measurements and be able to sew and, and, and make that happen uh, there for whatever product he was, he was producing here. But he probably worked side by side. He had a stall in the marketplace right next to probably these people, Aquila and Priscilla. You see, God uses things in your life, points of contact, things that you have in common with people as things to expand and explode ministry out of. What are the things in your life that you enjoy doing? What are the things in life that you do? What are the, what are, what are the ways God has gifted you and the ways you, you, have, you have connections with other people? Don't waste those connections here. Because it's out of this little core group of three people that the church will expand and build and multiply. Don't take these things for granted, the way God has gifted you, the way He's interested you. He wants to use it. And so God's presence is very clear. I am with you and His people. He brings Paul across to, um, uh, uh, across with Aquila and Priscilla. The Emperor Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome because he had heard about this character that Roman history tells us, this character called Crestus. That the Jews were connected with. Probably as a reference to Jesus Christ. And so he didn't like the, the things that were coming out of that. He kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And by chance, they happened to be there in Corinth with their trade as tent makers. He and his wife Priscilla. God's presence was in his people. God was bringing people along to build his church. Along comes in verse 5, Silas and Timothy, they were come from Macedonia. And Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Messiah, Jesus was Christ. And so God's presence was very obvious in His people, but His presence was also going to be very obvious here in verses 5 through 8 in His plan. In His plan. When Silas and Timothy were come down from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his, his raiment and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From hereafter I will go to the Gentiles. And he parted from there and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined harder or was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. See, God's presence was in his plan as well. 
What was God's plan? Well, his plan was to go to all the nations and to make disciples of all the nations. And Paul is doing this here through his point of contact with Aquila and Priscilla. His point of contact with being a Jew and going to the synagogue and showing these Old Testament scriptures you're talking about and spending all this time on. These Old Testament scriptures are pointing to the person who I gave my life for and I've given my life for. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the very anointed one of God, fully God, fully man, who came and fulfilled the promises of God for us. That was always God's plan. Don Champion a few weeks ago shared from Matthew 16 how Jesus said, I will build my church. And he said, it's upon this rock I'm going to build my church. And I connect that idea of the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on with the statement that Peter made that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the message that is preached here. That's the rock that Jesus is building his church. And this is his plan. Jesus Christ is the center of everything we do. That's why Paul will go into Corinth and he will say, I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And God's presence was in this plan because look what happens. After the Jews oppose that, uh, that, that message and Paul says, I'm going from now on to the Gentiles. And verse 7, it says, he found a man named Justice that worshipped God. He goes right next door to the synagogue. He says, I'm going to start there. Okay, here you are. When he's called, by the way, Justice here, he is called a, 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 a one that worshipped God, a God-fearer. He was probably a Greek who was um, uh, connected with the synagogue worship somehow. Um, but he's a Gentile. And he goes, Paul goes and ministers to him. And then in verse 8, Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, sees this Gentile come to the Lord, and he becomes saved. And, and look what verse 8 says, And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. You see, God's presence was not just in these people, these points of contact of Aquila and Priscilla and Silas and Timothy, but his presence is all throughout here and his plan to call out, remember, to call out from the Gentiles a people for his name. And then verses 9 through 11. It says, Then spoke the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. We don't know the background of why the Lord came to Paul that night in a vision. Why he came to him in a dream. Perhaps Paul realized, wow, things are getting out of control. People are believing the city is going to come into, into, into big conflict here. The pride of the city, the immorality of the city is, going, is coming into, into major conflict of the cross of Christ. And perhaps he, was, he began to worry and, and fear. And verse 9, God's presence was there in his promise. Then spoke the Lord to Paul in the night by vision, be not afraid, but speak. And hold not your peace. Do not keep quiet. For I am with you. And no man shall set on you or attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in the city. And he continued there a year and six months. Teaching the word of God among them. God's presence was in his promise, wasn't it? Jesus, before he ascended from this earth after his resurrection, said, when he said, go make disciples, he said, all authority, all power is given unto me. The authority of Jesus as the risen, ascended king was given to Jesus here. Jesus, Lord of all. He, he, he became a man. He suffered the death of a cross. He was raised up and he was given a name above every name, the Lord of all. And then Jesus says this. 
after he tells them what they're to do, to go and make disciples. Then to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit after they believe. And then uh, to teach them everything, uh, uh, they are to, they, how, how they are to obey Jesus. Jesus says, <clears throat> And lo, I am with you always. When Jesus says that, and Jesus says these words to Paul in his vision, I am with you, that's what Jesus is connecting his thought to. I am with you in this great mission, this great task. And how is it specifically that Jesus is with us? Certainly he is with us with his comfort and care, right? He says, be not afraid, but speak and hold not your peace. But the thrust of these verses, verse 9 and 10, how Jesus is with us. He is with us in his authority as King Jesus. As his representatives, as his ambassador of, uh, of Jesus Christ, uh, representing the message that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That's how Jesus is with you. You may feel frail, you may feel weak, you may feel feeble. But the truth is that the message that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and his authority has been delegated to you to declare that should cause those hunched over shoulders to stand up straight. Jesus is Lord. Notice how Jesus' presence here uh, 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 has a thrust to it. Be not afraid, but what? But speak and hold not your peace. Be not afraid because I'm with you. No man shall hurt you, for I have many people in this city. There's going to come out of the faithful teaching of my word, out of, the, out of the message that Jesus is the Messiah, the crucified and risen Messiah, there will come people who will be joined to these, this little band of followers that has already believed. And Jesus says, I have much people in this city. Paul had a few here. Many believed, but, but, but Jesus said the work's not done. We know the work's not done because verse 11, he says, he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And friends, I want you to understand that God's presence is in his promise. But finally, in verses 12 through 18, Luke decides to include this story, I believe, verses 12 through 18, to show what Jesus said in verse 9 and 10 was true. And one Gallio was a deputy in Achaia. This Gallio was a well-known guy in Roman history. In fact, if you studied, any, studied anything about Roman, um, Roman culture, Roman history, you may have heard of a particular orator named Seneca. Um, uh, Gallio was Seneca's brother. The Jews made insurrection with one accord. They were united, these Jews, um, in, verse, uh, in verse 6, who opposed Paul, they made insurrection, they rose up against Paul, and they brought him to the seat of Gallio with an accusation, verse 13, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. We don't know if they were referring to Jewish law or Roman law, they're probably a little bit of both, like the Jews um, tried to do to Jesus in Jerusalem. And Paul is ready to open his mouth, make a defense, and guess what? He doesn't have to. Because God works in Galileo's heart and he says, basically, I don't care. Honestly, that's what he's saying here in verse 14 and 15. It's not my business. I don't care about this. And verse 16 says, he drove them from the judgment seat. He says, your agenda, your issues, I, am not, I do not care about. This is not my issue here. 
And what happens in verse 17, it says, Then, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned. He cared for none of these things. Later on, we read in 1 Corinthians about a certain Sosthenes who becomes a believer. This might be the same person, although it was a relatively common name. Regardless, the point is this. In this story, Jesus is proving that his presence is there, his promise was true, and his provision of protection. His provision of protection. Was Paul protected physically every time he shared the gospel? No. But Jesus promised that I will protect you in this city. You, I will be with you. I will not allow anyone to hurt you. It was true here because he specifically promised it to Paul in this occasion. All throughout these verses, do you see this common theme of God's presence? He's already behind the scenes in Corinth, working, bringing people to connect with Paul. Right? He's already there in verses 5 through 8 with being kicked out of the synagogue and then opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. More people join in. He's there with his promise in verses 9 through 11 so clearly when he appears in Paul's dream. And his presence is so obvious here with how he uses this character Gallio who sets a precedent now in Corinth that don't mess with, um, don't mess with these people, these believers, these new believers, the gospel, this church. Jews don't raise up any more accusations against them because it will not be tolerated. He sets a precedent. And in a sense there, there is a freedom of religion there in Corinth that is not realized in other cities. God's presence is all through this. Now, what's the point of all this for you and I? If you're like me, you may be a timid person. You may be a doubtful person. Maybe a person who leans more toward fear and being scared and hesitant about your faith and sharing the, the gospel. And you might, if you're like me, feel much more comfortable in, our, in your little comfort zone than in Jesus' control. I want to tell you that's a lie. It's a lie. It's not true. Because, friends, if Jesus can save you from sin and hell and death to eternal life with him, Can he use you then to bring new life into the kingdom of God? If he can do this and defeat the greatest enemy of sin and death and hell, isn't there a sliver of a chance he could use you in this great plan of his? To bring new life to the kingdom of God and help that new life mature? Do you become tired of living for yourself and holding back the grace that was shown to you? Are there things in your life that are not turned over to Jesus as your King and Redeemer? And friends, if you have been served by a humble Savior who bore the humiliation and shame of the cross, how much lower can you go with that, right? And who then conquered the greatest fear of death, then how can we keep silent and how can we not love others and serve them to build up this bride who He shed His blood for? Yesterday, uh, Lee Pelletier shared how God just opened a door with a particular hobby of riding motorcycles um, to use that to open doors of all kinds of ministry to talk about Jesus. And he shared with us guys at the men's breakfast here how to use the ordinary things of life for God's purposes. And have you ever thought about how the ordinary things of life that you're really not going to 
spend time talking to mom on the phone about or uh, writing letters about um, really are what makes up our lives. Meals, our homes, neighbors, earning a living, working alongside people, hobbies, drives, walks, recreation. Can you use that for the kingdom of God? And have you ever thought about why do we treasure keeping to ourselves over loving and serving others for the sake of the gospel and gospel relationships? Through a conversation with um, Vic Pease uh, this week, he was sharing how he got saved at a young age. But it wasn't until he was older that um, he, he began to do things because God loved him and he loved God. Yes, he was saved from, from sin and hell, but, but, but there was... The, the motivations just became more fully realized later on when he realized, I want to do this. And how at one time in his life, he was a very shy and quiet person and wasn't excited about sharing the gospel, but how now it's more of a work to keep his mouth shut. And you ever thought about how, why all of us would agree probably and nod our heads when the preacher exhorts us to build relationships with each other and the lost and share Jesus with each other and the lost, but then expect others and not ourselves to do that. But can you imagine a church united and really believing God and stepping into His promises and trust and putting the father of lies and his lie of fear behind us, and shedding our timidity, and false meekness, and walking across the street to invite the neighbors to a barbecue, or to bring brownies to the neighbors. And then begin, as the Spirit allows and opens up doors, to share what makes us tick in the hope we have in Jesus from sin. And the hope we have when we go through suffering. And to see that person's heart awakened by God as he builds through this, and the warmth of, of new light flooding in, and, and to see them baptized as a fellow believer committed to Jesus and his church, and the truth that God would, would use you to help build them up in their new appetite for the Word of God, and how to pray, and how to do the same thing that God helped you do with them. You see, that's the vision that God has for all of us. But you might say, well, I don't know enough. Friends, I want to tell you, that is such a relative term. You honestly know more than many pastors and churches around the world. And those of you who have traveled to other countries can probably affirm that. And, but let me ask you this, regardless of that or not. How much did Andrew and the Gospels know when Jesus appears to him and says, follow me? How much did Andrew the disciple know when he met Jesus? And then he went and got his brother and brought him to Jesus. You say, but what if they have really hard questions? And Well, that's something maybe you need for your humility, right? But you can also try and find out the answers and ask for help. And you can also be trusting the power of the gospel and the Spirit's working to break through objections through your prayer for them. And I wonder if maybe... Sandwiched in some of these objections here that we have about the gospel is the responsibility that we'll have if they believe. Maybe we're scared of that. Like what, if, what, 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 what if they get saved? Then what? 
I've never discipled anyone. And that's the great part. Because you get discipled as you're discipling. You go day by day, moment by moment. And I guarantee you, you won't regret it at the end. You'll find there's great joy in this messy work of grace. There was a great emphasis in years past to have evangelism through events that churches put on. And it was particularly helpful in that particular culture. And But I wonder if maybe it let the professionals do the job of evangelizing and strip the responsibility from everyone who sits in the pew. You see, Jesus' work happens less with events, though he certainly is not opposed to using them. But it happens more if we really look at the trajectory of the New Testament with God's people outside of the church building. Being faithful witnesses who love and serve the community they live in. Kids, you have opportunities at your schools or your homeschool groups to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. To begin to share, first of all, that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. To then ask how you can serve other people. Moms, you say, well, I'm a, I'm a mom and I have all this responsibility. You're making disciples at home, but you also have opportunities through the, even the medium of children. The library, kids' activities, sports activities, etc. In other words, no matter what stage of life you're in, God can use you, and he wants to use you in this great work of building up his church. So what I'm asking you this morning is, will you begin? You begin, first of all, with prayer for God to birth new life into our church, and then for us to be spiritual parents, to help those new lives grow in the spiritual parents who reproduce as well. I really believe that God will not birth new lives into our responsibility unless we're willing to be spiritual parents. Because God is not interested in spiritual abortions. He is not interested in people who only leave the ones who they have brought to Christ at infant level. Jesus is concerned about us being people who care and speak the truth in love and help others grow. And then would you pray for that to be true, not in general of our church, but of you this year. God's timeline is his timeline, right? But what efforts are we putting into, personally, individually, corporately as a church? What efforts are we putting into this great mission because of God's presence with us? I want to remind you that the Lord is with you. And I can say, because this community is not fully reached for Jesus Christ, that he has many in this community to become disciples who make disciples. And not one of us has an excuse good enough. But I don't want to motivate you out of guilt. I want to motivate you out of the grace that God has shown to you. Think of the people who invested in your lives, the people who have showed truth to you, the people who have spoken hard things in your lives that you needed to hear, the people who have shown the word of God and pointed you to Jesus. Maybe it was a mother, a father, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, 
a man who took an interest in you, young men, a lady who showed an interest in you, young ladies, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher. And what they were doing was directing you face-to-face with Jesus. You see, that's all discipleship is. That's all evangelism is. It is directing people to the wonderful truths of Jesus through truth and relationship. The Lord is with you. And He has many people in this community to become disciples who make disciples. As we close, heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder if there'd be a few of you who would just stand and pray that the Lord would do this work as He did in Corinth. And if He can do it in Corinth, can He do it in Midcoast, Maine? Ask that God would raise up new life and then disciples who would nurture that new life. Give us a vision for evangelism and for building up. As you feel led, go ahead and stand and pray. Oh God, we thank you. This morning, we can come to you in prayer. We thank you, oh God, for the Word of God. We thank you that you're always with us. And Holy Father, I just pray, first of all, for myself, oh God, that I be more prayer. And 